It's that time of the year again to go ahead and pick up some shoeboxes and get those filled so that we can uh, take the gospel message uh, in the form of a Christmas gift to kids all over the world, especially in third world countries. And so just want to encourage you, these are available out here in the hallway. You can go ahead and pick some up and uh, get ready to participate in that. Uh, we are going to be continuing uh, our look at the epistle to the Galatians this morning with a message entitled, Save to Serve Together. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you would, for the reading of the Word. And we're going to begin reading in chapter 6, verse 1, if you would read along with me. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today again we thank you for the amazing privilege that it is to be able to come together with like-minded believers and to immerse ourselves in the study of your word. We thank you for its power to impact our lives, not only for time, but for eternity. We pray today, Lord, that you would open your word to our minds and that it would saturate our thinking we pray, Lord, that you would enable us by the power of your spirit working through and with the word to help us live lives that bring glory to Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. As we have been looking through the epistle to the Galatians, we have found that believers are free from the law of Moses and that believers are set at liberty in the Spirit. Can you say amen? Isn't it good to know that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed? And yet, even though we have been set free in Christ, we are expected and commanded to fulfill the law of Christ. And that kind of life is God's expectation of us. That kind of life is God's provision to us. And that kind of life is God's plan for us. We are called to fulfill the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? Well, very simply, the law of Christ is the law of love. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. In fact, Jesus said, the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the law of Christ is the law of love. We are called to fulfill the law of Christ. And such a life is a life of sacrificial love for God and love for others. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the essence of discipleship is Sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. 
Disciples of Christ are those who follow Christ. Jesus humbled Himself, became a servant, condescended to clothe Himself in flesh, and throughout His earthly life, He served the Father and He served others. So a sacrificial service of life is the duty of every true Christian disciple. We are called to live lives of sacrificial service. With that in mind, as we dive into this pericope this morning, I want to identify four duties of discipleship. Four duties of discipleship. The first duty, to strengthen sinning believers. To strengthen sinning believers. Say it with me. Strengthen sinning believers. You would probably agree with me that the Christian life is to be a life lived in holiness. We are called to live a holy life. In fact, this has been God's intention for His people ever since the beginning. Way back in the book of Leviticus, God told the children of Israel, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He didn't say, when you feel like it, try to do good. He said, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In fact, it is a chief attribute of God. It is a quality to be developed in God's people. The Bible gives the word holy and holiness 900 times. How many of you would agree with me that's a pretty big deal for God? 900 times in the library of Scripture that we call the Bible. 900 times. Be holy. And the word holiness being used to describe what God expects of us, for it is one of His chief attributes. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So holiness is something that is God's expectation and God's requirement of His people. So, what is holiness? Holiness is separation from that which is defiled. Holiness is cutting off that which is impure. It's dividing the clean from the unclean. Consecrating ourselves to God and coming apart from that which is, un, that which is defiled. Paul described this great contrast when he spoke earlier of the works of the flesh juxtaposed to the fruit of the Spirit. We are to live holy lives. In fact, in the epistles, the Christian's standard is defined in terms of holiness. Our thoughts are to be holy. Our attitudes are to be holy. Our behavior is to be holy. Holiness is to define our relationships. Holiness is to determine our recreational habits. Holiness is to describe even our work ethic. We are to be holy. And so to the very troubled church of Corinth, Paul wrote these words, Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God's expectation of the Christian life 
is that it would be a life of holiness. We are called to live holy lives. Lives that are separated from sin and consecrated unto the Lord. A brief side note, that is the pathway to sanity. For those who have turned their back on God, for those who have repressed the truth in sin, they are under, even today, the wrath of God. And according to Romans chapter 1, that wrath finds its consummation in this life in a mind that is depraved and reprobate, that no longer functions properly. This is why you can have grown men identifying as girls. And they're serious. Even though every cell in their body contains a Y chromosome, logic itself, set aside the Scriptures, logic itself from a scientific biological vantage point demands they are men. They are male. And yet the depraved and reprobate mind is dysfunctional. It is not capable of clear thinking. Holiness is what we are called to. A byproduct of which is sanity and thinking clearly about things. How many of you know, though, that living a holy life is not an easy task? (laughs) It's not easy. And if we think it is, well, we're only fooling ourselves. Because living a holy life is a struggle from the new birth to the grave. A struggle that the Apostle Paul was all too familiar with. Paul understood the struggle involved in living a holy life. He called himself the chief of sinners. And yet when I look at his life, I see a man who was endeavoring to live a holy life. Paul understood the ongoing battle In his own mind. And that is, in fact, where the battle takes place. It's no surprise that if God wants us to live a holy life and that that life is going to be lived out of the state of a mind that has been renewed, that the very helmet is called the helmet of salvation. We're incapable of thinking with a renewed mind until we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And He renews our mind. And yet the battle is ongoing. In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 22, Paul said, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So here's a man who loves the Lord, who's devoted his life to the spread of the Gospel, who's given himself to be an apostle in the church. He delights to do the law of God in the inward man. And then he goes on to say, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You hear the pain in this statement? Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And then he rejoices in the answer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, from the other writings of Paul, we find that he was growing and maturing and learning to live a holy life consecrated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he dealt severely with the old sinful nature. He considered the members of his earthly body as dead to immorality, dead to evil desire, dead to impurity, dead to greed, dead to passion. Paul would tell the church in Corinth, I discipline my body and make it my slave. I will not be mastered by anything. He grabbed the old nature by the nap of the neck. And said, you will serve me as I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot toy with the playthings of the world. But we must be very severe when it comes to the carnal nature. That was Paul's attitude. And as a result, he had learned to live a holy life. And yet, he still understood the ongoing nature of the struggle with sin. You see, the spiritually mature is the one who has come to know all too well the temptations of the flesh. And rather than being puffed up with smug self-righteousness, that person throws himself or herself upon the grace and mercy of God and depends upon the Scripture and leans on the power of the Holy Spirit. That is where you find victory. Can you say amen? Paul understood that there are times when the Christian may become ensnared by sin. And when that happens, the body of Christ is to come around that person. Like soldiers in the battle, we are to lift them up. We are to strengthen the fallen comrade. That's our duty. That is what we are to do. Many years ago, I was serving in a, pa- in a pastorate of a church where there was a highly decorated combat veteran. He had fought in Vietnam. We've got several decorated combat veterans here this morning. We honor you. We respect you by honoring our flag and by honoring our national anthem. And we say, way to go. We believe in the service you gave to this great land. Amen. We love you and we follow in your footsteps. This was a man who was highly decorated because he had gone from the safety of his chopper into the jungle and there finding fallen comrades in arms. This big barrel-chested man threw a soldier over his shoulder and took him to the safety of the chopper and laid him down on the stretcher and then under gunfire ran back into the jungle And did it again, and did it again, and did it again. And there are four men that are alive today because of a brave soldier who understood greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. He wasn't going to leave his fallen comrades behind. What an inspiring picture of how believers in the Lord Jesus Christ 
are to treat fallen brothers and sisters. That's what we are called to do. Can you say amen? And so Paul tells us in verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Notice that it is the one who is spiritual who is to do the restoring. These that are called spiritual are the ones who are to engage in the restoration. Spiritual. What does he mean? Well, look at the context. Back up a pace or two. What did Paul just get done talking about? The fruit of the Spirit. Contrasted with the works of the flesh. So those who are spiritual are those who are walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the ones who are walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping step with the Spirit. They are spiritual. Not perfect Christians. But Christians who take their faith seriously. Seriously. And before attempting to remove the splinter from their brother's eye, they've removed the two by four from their own. (laughs) They've taken the beam out of the way that they might help take the speck out of their brother's eye. They do not have an attitude that is smug or self-righteous. But in humility, taking care to not be tempted themselves. You see, they recognize their own vulnerability. They recognize their own dependency on the Spirit. And therefore, they are bolstered against temptation. Not because they try harder, but because they know they are completely incompetent. And that it's only by the power of God's Word and God's Spirit in their life that gives them the strength they need to live keeping in step with the Spirit. These who are spiritual restore their fallen brothers and sisters in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Now the Greek word that is translated gentleness, proutes, is a fruit of the Spirit. And it describes a calm and tender demeanor. They're not railing. They're not judgmental. They're not condemning. But when they approach the brother or sister who has been entrapped in sin, they have a calm and attentive concern for that fallen person. It's beautifully pictured in the life of Jesus when the Woman caught in adultery was brought before him. Remember? And Jesus was teaching. And this woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. Someone says, well, where was the man? Right? Well, that's where self-righteousness will get you. Winks at the man, gives the man a pass. But the woman caught in adultery, brought before the Lord, interrupted his teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees hurled her down at Jesus' feet, treating her violently and with contempt. 
And there they stood in all of their smug self-righteousness, clenching stones in their hand. They were ready to bash her brains out. That's what they were going to do. But they wanted to entrap Jesus. Ah, this is our opportunity to ensnare the son of Joseph. Jesus, they say to him, the law of Moses commands us to stone one like this. But what say you? And Jesus, not missing a beat, stoops down and begins to write something in the sand. What was he writing? Scholars have speculated that perhaps he began to write words that describe the sins of those who were condemning her. We don't know. When he finished what he was writing, he stood up and he looked at them and he said, Let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. (laughs) And what happened? Well, they began dropping their rocks. From the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And then Jesus, with tenderness and compassion, I imagine he probably lifted the woman to her feet and he said, Daughter, where are those who accuse you? And she looked around and she said, Lord, there are none. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. What a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ is to come around the sinning brother or sister and seek to restore them. Notice the difference between Jesus and the legalists. Notice the difference between Jesus and these scribes and Pharisees, these legalists. The legalists were loud. They were demanding. They were accusatory. They were arrogant and proud. They were demanding their pound of flesh. But Jesus, the righteous one, the holy one, the only one without sin, he was calm, he was tender, he was compassionate, he was understanding and yet directive, he was humble and gentle, and he forgave and restored this woman. In that event, Jesus demonstrated how we are to restore brothers and sisters who are caught in a snare of sin. Paul references this attitude in 2 Corinthians by referring to it as the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. Notice that it was not compromising. Jesus did not compromise the standard whatsoever. But in tenderness and in compassion, he restored the woman and sent her on her way to be free from that sin. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives more specific instructions of how we are to restore fallen brothers and sisters. He says, if your brother sins, Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, throw him out of the church. No, that's not what he said. He said, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus said, go to him privately with discretion. Once Twice. Then bring him before the congregation if the, he still won't listen. And only after he's rejected it again and again and again, then you are to put him out of the fellowship. You are to treat him as a tax collector or as a Gentile. Why? Because the entire purpose is renewing and restoring that person to fellowship. That's the whole purpose. And even when you finally have been pushed and pushed and pushed again, then and only then do you put them out of the fellowship. And the purpose is that they would feel the weight and the consequences of their unrepentant heart. So perhaps they would say, I need to get serious about this. It's costing me too much. I want to repent. And if that should happen, then the Apostle Paul tells us they are restored. They're restored. Notice with the adulterous woman, there was no discretion. There was a public square. There was no sense of discretion. There was an effort rather to shame the woman. No effort to spare her reputation. To the contrary, The legalists publicly scorned the woman, parading her before the crowd. They humiliated her, making her into a public spectacle. How profound that Jesus didn't treat them the way they were treating her. He had all knowledge available to him. This was God, the Son. Had he wanted to, he could have stood up and said, each one of you freeze right where you're at. We're going to take our time and we're going to unpack your closets. And he could have gone to each one of them singularly. And he could have listed a whole parade of sins that they themselves had probably forgotten. But he didn't. He was even gracious to them. Go ahead. Cast the first stone. If you're without sin. Oh, well, since you put it that way... (laughs) Even gracious with them. It's amazing. Jesus taught us to do the opposite of what the legalists did. Go to the person privately. And then with gentleness and with concern, discuss the matter with them. Sometimes, he says, that's all it will take. They'll listen. And you've won your brother. Praise the Lord. But if that doesn't work and the person's unwilling to repent, he says, go to them a second time with two or three fellow believers. That out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, the facts will be established. How many of you know sometimes there's a lot of fiction mixed in with fact? 
A lot of miscommunication, a lot of misunderstanding. And then, after two failed attempts involve the congregation, the goal is repentance and restoration. And such attempts, listen, such attempts at restoration are the duty of every disciple. Every disciple. Christian accountability is to run throughout the church body. It's to permeate Christian relationships. I don't need to hear about every brother or sister who's fallen into sin. The deacons don't need to hear about every brother or sister who's fallen into sin. That's your responsibility. It's called body ministry. You are to go to them privately with an attitude of concern and humility. Restore them gently. And if they will repent, you've won your brother. You've won your sister. That doesn't work. Take two or three. Hand-picked. Prayed about. Lord, who are some folks who are walking with You? Who are keeping in step with the Spirit? Who are living in a spiritual way that I might bring them? That These are people that are trustworthy. People that understand how to keep a confidence. People that understand matters of a sensitive nature. That we could see restoration and renewal. Only after that hasn't worked twice do you bring it to the attention of church leadership so that we can hopefully restore that person. This is the duty of every Christian. So four duties of discipleship. The first, strengthen sinning believers. The second one, sustain fellow believers. In verse 2 here, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So again, what does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? It means to walk in love toward others. So just prior to this passage, Paul described two ways of living. The Christian way and the carnal way. The Christian way he describes in terms of life in the Spirit. Characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. A love for God. A life of sacrificial service. This is the law of Christ. The law of love. The carnal way, he describes as life in the flesh. Marked by the works of the flesh. Love for self. A life of selfish ambition. And this is the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. But he tells us, fulfill the law of Christ. Walk in love toward God and others. And so in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, one of the ways that we serve one another is by bearing each other's burdens. This is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Faith expressed in love. Now when Cain, in smug self-righteousness, dared to ask God, am I my brother's keeper? The clear and thunderous response from all of us should be, why yes, indeed, you are your brother's keeper. 
For that is the pattern of the Scripture from Genesis all to Revelation. The principle of caring for one another permeates Scripture. It saturates Scripture. And it's demonstrated in spiritual care. Remember the Old Testament prophets. They were told that if they would warn the people of sin and impending judgment, if they warned the people, they had fulfilled their responsibility. But if they failed to warn the people, then the blood of the people was on their hands. And so we see that the principle of caring for one another, permeating Scripture, is displayed in spiritual care. But it's also displayed in physical care. Now, the early church was under tremendous persecution. I mean, we're here today and, you know, we've got runny noses and cold fingers. (laughs) This is not persecution. (laughs) There are brothers and sisters around the world that are facing severe persecution right now. And that's the kind of persecution that the early church was facing. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their houses, losing their businesses. They had great needs throughout the Christian church. So how were they cared for? Through each other. Other Christians were caring for those that had lost everything. And so Acts chapter 2 tells us, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now this is not a call to socialism. Rather, this is an example of what happens when people have lost it all. Those who still have some do what they need to do to meet the needs of those who have given everything for the cause of Christ. And so Paul tells us in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So one way that we bear one another's burdens is by helping sinning believers. We talked about that. But another way is by providing for the material needs of other believers. This word burden literally means heavy load. It's where we get the phrase beasts of burden from. And to bear, this word, it means to carry or lift. So it literally means to pick something up and carry it off, carry it away. So when your brother or sister is burdened, then you must help them any way that you can. And it is not a suggestion. The Greek is in the imperative, which means an ongoing command. It's not a choice. It's a command. When we see our brothers and sisters in need, we are commanded to do what we must do to help alleviate the burden. We are to be continually caring for one another. Now, how many of you know you cannot care for someone if you're not aware of their needs? Right? How can you meet a need if you don't know that the need exists? In other words, if we're going to care for one another, we must know about the needs that we have within the body of Christ. We've got to know about each other's needs. We've got to be involved in each other's lives. 
We've got to walk together in the Christian life. Now that is completely contrary to the culture. We live in the garage door opener culture. You know what I mean? You pull into your driveway, you wave at your neighbor, you hit the button, door goes up, you go in, door goes down. No fuss, no mess, no struggle. That is a perfect picture of our culture. It's how people live. You can live in a neighborhood for years and not even know the first names of your neighbors. How are we going to share Christ? We don't even know them. But what's sad is that I've seen that begin to encroach in the Christian world. That there are churches of 10,000 members where nobody knows anybody. You show up, you worship in the shadows, throw a few coins in the plate, you leave. And nobody has to get involved. And nobody has to care for anybody else. Friends, that is not at all what the church is to be about. You see, our culture is self-absorbed. Our culture is obsessed with entertainment. They are constantly bombarded with distractions. Even harmless diversions are incessant and ongoing. Just living life from one vacation to the next. Living life from one entertainment venue to the next. Trying to find some reason to get out of bed in the morning because a culture that lives that way is a culture that is self-obsessed. And the result? People are not always connected with each other. They don't always know each other's needs. And when that happens in the church... Christians live lives of isolation. They don't really share life together. If we're not careful, that could even happen in our own church. One more distraction. We look at Sunday morning as simply an entertainment option of a spiritual nature that we do once a week. But God never intended for the church to be an entertainment choice of a spiritual nature once a week. That's not God's intention for the church. God's desire is the church to be a spiritual family, a family of believers, living the Christian life together, celebrating our victories together, and sharing our burdens with each other. Can you say amen? And so in verse 14 of chapter 5, Paul said, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you know you know when you have a need? (laughs) So you should know when your brothers and sisters have needs. It's not their responsibility just to share it with you. It's also your responsibility to know about it. Amen? My wife is a big help for me in this area. She will like tell me, you need to call so-and-so. You need to write a thank you note to so-and-so. She puts names right in front of me. She helps me with that, right? She's my alter ego with that because I can be very focused, almost like a laser, and not see what's happening around me sometimes. But we are to help each other, communicate with each other, share our lives together, Be aware of the burdens that our brothers and sisters are bearing so that we can come alongside and help to lift the load. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So two duties of the disciple. Strengthen sinning believers. Sustain fellow believers. And number three, scrutinize yourself. Turn and tell your neighbor, scrutinize yourself. I think some of you took too much pleasure in saying that. (laughs) Scrutinize yourself. And so in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you just say we're supposed to bear each other's burdens? So it seems on the surface that we have a contradiction. But there is no contradiction. We just need to dig a little bit deeper. You see, the word that is translated burden in verse 2 means heavy load. Remember, beasts of burden, heavy load. But here in verse 5, it is a different Greek word. The word that is translated load actually means a soldier's pack. That's one way of looking at it, a soldier's pack. Now, I was in the Navy. And when you were in the Navy and you were in boot camp, you went through the line and they gave you, first of all, a a green canvas bag. It was called your sea bag. And then as you proceeded on down the line, you got everything you needed for your sea bag. No one else carried your sea bag. You carried your own sea bag. In the same way, every believer has been assigned Christian responsibilities that he or her is responsible to carry. Nobody's going to carry your sea bag. That's your responsibility. You are to carry your own sea bag. You are to carry your own soldier's pack. So what is it? These are duties and disciplines that you yourself are responsible for. You see, my study of the Word for me personally to get nourishment for me throughout the week isn't going to nourish you throughout the week. Right? you got to read the Bible for yourself. You have to pray for yourself. You have to study the Scriptures and meditate upon them for yourself. You have to come to church and gather together with other believers in the fellowship of the church for yourself. These are things that we do that are part of our spiritual sea bag that we must bear alone. That's our load. That's our personal responsibility. But thankfully, Jesus said, My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. You see, when we start unpacking that sea bag of Bible study, that sea bag of personal fellowship with the saints, that sea bag of prayer, that sea bag of meditating on the Word of God, what we will find is that these responsibilities, that these these loads actually make the burden lighter. Because we find ourselves keeping in step with the Spirit we find that these very responsibilities He has given us help lighten the load. But sometimes the burdens of life are too heavy for one person to bear. 
the burdens. Not the sea bag load, but the burdens of life. How do you know when you're effectively carrying your own load? Well, Paul gives us the answer right here. You consider yourself. You look at your own life. You consider your own work. You examine, is my life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Or am I engaging in the works of the flesh? Paul told the troubled church in Corinth, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So this morning, in the quietness of your own heart, I want you to ask yourself, am I taking my spiritual life seriously? Am I walking in step with the Spirit? Am I seeing the production of the fruit of the Spirit in my life? How's my prayer life? How's my relationship with the Lord? Am I regularly reading and studying and meditating on the Word? My living in obedience to the Bible. In Romans 12, we're told, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, friends, we don't read the Scripture in order to please God. We don't pray in order to please God. We don't attend church in order to please God. Now those things do please God. But that's not our motive. Our motive, we bear the load of these Christian responsibilities in order to renew our minds. That our minds would be recalibrated by the truth of God's Word and by the presence of His Spirit in an ongoing, everyday fashion. This is our Christian responsibility. This is the load that each one of us must bear. Bear your load. Give yourself the power of God's Word and God's manifest presence in your life every day. And you'll find that That load makes your burden much lighter. So four duties of discipleship. Strengthen sinning believers. Sustain sustain fellow believers. Scrutinize yourself. And the number four, share with teachers. He tells us in verse 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. What a beautiful picture of discipleship. Teachers sharing the truth with the disciples and the disciples sharing all good things with the teachers. This last week, a friend of mine and I went out for breakfast one morning and we sat down to a delightful time of fellowship at the table that was spread with delicious food. It was wonderful. And we just had a very rich time together. But at the end of our breakfast, something very peculiar happened. The waitress brought us a bill. (laughs) Imagine that. The waitress brought us a bill. And we were even complimentary. We even said this was wonderful food. This was delicious coffee. Bringing us a bill? Really? Really? Well, we we were complimentary. 
We were encouraging. You see, the restaurant expected more than complimentary language. The restaurant expected us to pay for our bill. They expected us to put our money where our mouth was. Now, I'm sure that they appreciated the encouragement. I'm sure they appreciated the uh, the words of praise for a good service. But that wasn't going to pay the bill. That wasn't going to keep the lights turned on. Likewise, in the church, words of encouragement are always welcome. But there is a scriptural responsibility to care for those who teach. Now, in the context of the church... We are given a regu- we are to give regularly and cheerfully to the work of God. Can you say amen? This is October, which means it's budget time. Time for us to put the budget together for 2018. And so every ministry is submitting their needs for the coming year, what they will need to sustain their ministries and what they would like to have in order to grow and develop their ministries. But the sad truth is that there's never enough to do what we would like to do. There's always enough to keep the lights turned on and keep the bills paid. Praise the Lord. But there's never enough to adequately grow the ministries. Ever. What's the problem? The problem is people are enjoying the breakfast, but they are paying with compliments. Problem is people are receiving spiritual nourishment and yet they are simply taking it for granted. Listen to this. In America, only 3 to 5% of evangelical Christians tithe. 95 to 97% do not tithe. Only 37% of regular attendees uh, give on a regular basis. The average weekly donation in an American Protestant church, $17. Now, thankfully, our church does much better than the national averages. Praise the Lord. I think that that bespeaks a level of spiritual maturity amongst those who are regularly giving. Thankfully, our congregation does better than the average church. But what would happen if everyone that regularly attended church simply tithed. Think of the possibilities. Ministries would be fully funded. We could expand our community outreach programs. We could increase our giving to missionaries. We could add staff, maybe a children's pastor, a minister of Christian education, a minister of music. We could renovate our entire facilities. We could put in brand new parking lots. Think of the possibilities. It's pretty exciting. Instead of struggling from year to year to simply maintain ministries at their current operational levels, we could see those ministries thrive. Just the sky's the limit. Let's just go for broke. With God, all things are possible. It would be absolutely amazing. Amazing. Some people say, I'd love to do that, but I simply cannot afford to give. And I just want to say, sometimes that's true. 
Sometimes the financial rug gets jerked out from under you and you are sent sailing. Any of us with any gray hair knows that that happens in life, right? When an unexpected emergency arises and boom, your bank account takes a hit, another one comes up and boom, another one, boom. And pretty soon the perfect storm has left your savings completely depleted. That happens. Being laid off. You know, pinching pennies till they bleed. I understand that happens. Without a doubt. However, I also know that frequently when people will think that, it's not really the result of the financial rug getting jerked out from under them as much as it is a matter of misplaced priorities. Listen, our culture, it seems like people have always got enough money for entertainment, Always have enough money to eat out. Always have enough money for extracurricular activities. And God's work suffers. But there's more. According to the Bible, there's a direct correlation between giving and priorities. A direct correlation. Jesus said in Luke 12, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you investing in? Whatever you decide in the place of prayer, Whatever you decide in the place of scriptural study, whatever you decide when you are walking in step with the Spirit, these are going to be the priorities of my life. Give to that. Because when you give to that, you will find that your heart jumps over itself to give that a place of prominence where your treasure is There your heart will be also. You'll find that as you begin to regularly and cheerfully give to the work of God, your heart will begin to delight in the work of God. Your priorities will break clean from the values of the culture. Eternal things will begin to take a place of prominence in your life. God's work will be blessed and your life will be enriched. Because you cannot outgive God. It's impossible. You cannot outgive God. I go to bed at night in the warmth of a bed next to a woman who loves me, who loves God, in a house that keeps me warm and safe, food in the pantry, food in the refrigerator, more than I need. Blessed. Blessed. Have a church that loves us and supports us. Blessed. Wow. We are so blessed. You just cannot outgive God. It's impossible. And the greatest news of all is He's even got my death covered. 
Do you realize that as a child of God, the Lord has already made plans for my departure? And what will be a day of sadness for my loved ones will be a day of great rejoicing on the other side when my Father welcomes me into His kingdom and says, well done. And I'll say, only because of you. (laughs) Anything good was you. Anything I screwed up, that was me. (laughs) Amen? You can't outgive God. Jesus said in Luke 6, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. It will be measured back to you. So four duties of disciples. Strengthen sinning believers. Sustain fellow believers. Scrutinize yourself. Share with teachers. I believe that as we do these things, we will be living a life of sacrificial service. We'll be loving God and loving others and fulfilling the law of Christ. Fulfilling the law of love. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You today for the beautiful opportunity to dive deeply into Your Word. Your Word which never fails to challenge us, never fails to correct us, never fails to recalibrate our priorities and values. Your Word which never fails us. Indeed, it cannot, for it never returns unto You void. Thank You for Your Word. What a treasure it is. I pray today, Lord, that we will take this life of fulfilling the law of Christ very seriously. Help us to be faithful to carry our own load even as we seek to help our brothers and sisters with the burdens that are too great for them to bear. Father, I pray that as we do these things, we will see just a new freshness of life and vitality and fellowship run throughout this body. Grow us in You to more reflect full Christian maturity. We know that's Your desire. And we're thankful as we already see Your Spirit at work amongst us. And now, Lord, it's with that gratitude of heart that we give back to You a portion of that which You have so richly blessed us with. We pray that You would take these offerings, that You would multiply them, even as You did the fish and the loaves, and that You will give us wisdom to know how best to invest them. In Jesus' name, Amen.